Let's pray together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for another just super day here at camp, uh, enjoying all the activities and food and uh, old and new friendships, but mostly thank you that we can gather to worship you. Um, singing in a group like this, praying in a group like this, now studying the word in a group like this, what a blessing. Uh, what a little foretaste of what heaven's going to be like. It's awesome. Thank you. Now, Lord, as we dig into your word again tonight, uh, help me uh, to do my job. Help those who hear to be teachable and attentive and humble and pliable. Any who are still holding out and don't know Christ, save them. And I pray that Christians, as we move to love you more and to worship you with just all of their life, not just, not just when we sing, but with their entire beings, with their entire future. Again, I pray, Lord, that uh, in your mercy, in addition to the other things you do, I pray that there will be some that have a course direction. Um, yes, from sin unto righteousness, but also maybe just from their plans to your plans. And uh, there's a shortage of laborers. There's a shortage of missionaries. There's a shortage of pastors. There's so many people that you're working in their lives and they're growing in godliness and they love you and they could turn the world upside down. I pray that in your mercy, you would do a great work, not only for uh, the people in this room, but through the people in this room for years to come. Uh, I, pray, I pray that the devil will look at this week at IRBC and hate it. Uh, I pray that you will win. Uh, in individual lives and then in future ministries for your glory. So greater is he that's in us and he that's in the world. Help us tonight. Teach us from your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. Wow, you guys, uh, you made me weep tonight. I was trying to sing Is He Worthy? And I just, like, I couldn't sing. I was so moved. And, uh, you know, that entire song is basically a quotation from... Uh, from Revelation 5, a few other passages, but it's just, we're singing what we're going to be singing in heaven with people from every uh, tribe and language and people and nation, and we're all going to be gathering, giving praise to the Lamb. That was, that was moving. Now, I'm going to critique you just a little bit tonight. Um, when, when Pastor Phil said that somebody trusted Christ tonight, you were like, oh, Cool. And then he said, you get to sleep in 30 minutes, and this place came unglued. All right, I'm going to give you a mulligan. Let's try that again. Uh, pastor told us that today he got to meet a new brother in Christ because somebody had come from the darkness to the light. What do you think of that? Let's pray that that'll happen again and again and again. There is joy in heaven when a sinner repents. There should be joy on earth when a sinner repents. Uh, let me say just something to you uh, very briefly about the end of services. Um, this camp has a culture, and, and I really have kind of a, an approach to ministry that um, when we get to the end of a service, even when we've been studying God's Word, you guys have been so attentive. I really feel like God's been working. Um, I've, I've preached thousands of times, 30 years worth of preaching, thousands of times. I've never enjoyed preaching more than I have this week. I love this. Um, Phil, thank you for letting me do this. I love this. 
Um, so God, God's working among us, and we get to the end of the service, and I'm not going to be a, a preacher that manipulates, and you know, we have long invitations, and how dare you not get out of your seat, go to the back, and you know, we could sing just as I am, like eight verses, and then at the end I could say, if you love your mom, go to the back, you know. Um, we're not going to do that. And I believe God's working in your hearts generally. But after the service last night, it was a blessing to walk through Jensen and see that there were some people that at the end of the service, they said, you know what, I don't want to just go back to my cabin, get ready for bed, talk, you know, just move on with my day. I need some private time, maybe some private time just to pray by myself. But sometimes it's really helpful to have time where you get with an adult, with a mentor, with a, a staff member, and, and you say, you know what? Only God can work in my life, but will you talk with me, counsel me? Will you pray for me, pray with me? And sometimes it really is helpful to, in the moment that God is working, uh, take some time and just get alone in private. You know, the danger is don't think that by walking back and going into Jensen for a few minutes, you've solved something. Uh, but it is good to spend some time, and, and when God is working, just remove distractions and say, you know, I need some time with Him. So, um, tonight, if not a lot of people with me, that's great. But if God's working in your heart, maybe it's not even from the message tonight. Tonight's message might be a dud, let's be honest. But cumulatively through the week, conversations in your cabins, the morning messages from Proverbs, the John 4, if God's been working and, and maybe you're holding out or you're not sure, just stop. Stop fighting and uh, allow us to rejoice with you when God works in your life as well. At the end of the service, if you need some time with a friend or a counselor to get to Jensen, just have some time to pray. Do that, okay? And I'm not going to twist your arm. I'm not going to press you about it, but it can be a really valuable thing to do. Well, some of you saw me today running around campus. Did anybody see me exercising today? Uh, it doesn't happen often, so if you saw it, just take note. Uh, a, a few of you, when I was jogging slash walking, uh, sauntering, um, I, I told you, you know, do you know CPR? I might run again tomorrow, maybe. Now, can we just understand something? If I need CPR, push on my chest. But if I need mouth-to-mouth, -mouth, you just let me die, all right? <laughs> or the way you do CPR in 2022 is like this. You go... <sighs> <sighs> so you can practice that later at home. I, I have to tell you just one, because running's on my mind, let me tell you one story, and then we got a lot to do tonight. But years ago, many years ago, I was running, exercising, and I had a, bu a bucket list item. I said, I think I'm going to try to run a marathon. So I started, I know it was a long time ago. You're looking at me like, no way. I know. But it was, it was slow and many years ago, but it happened. And um, I'd been training and training and training and training. And uh, I'm not fast, but, you know, eventually I could just kind of keep going and uh, slowly make it. The day came. I was so excited, kind of nervous. And it's five in the morning, I'm leaving, and my wife's not really into sports. She didn't grow up, you know, uh, playing a lot of athletics, but she wanted to encourage me. She wanted to help me, give me some good advice. So as I'm going out the door, my wife says to me, Chris, be careful, because I've heard some people in a marathon get so tired that they lose control of their bodily functions. So be careful today. In the entire race, I was like petrified. I was, every time I passed a portage on, I'm like, you know, I probably should stop just, just to be careful. So 
Uh, I, I thought it was funnier than, than you did, apparently, but that's, that's my experience. Not a great athlete. We have great athletes here. Uh, I'm not among them, but, you know, make an effort. John chapter 4 is where we're at. Tonight's message is not going to be um, an easy one. This, this is maybe the most informational message of the week. It may not be quite as emotional. Um, it's important. And we're going to talk about what God is doing. And, you know, we've seen that Jesus seeks sinners. Jesus saves sinners. Praise God. Even deeper than that, Jesus satisfies sinners and had a good time discussing last night how Jesus offered to meet uh, not just the sin needs of this woman, but, but the longings, uh, that she wouldn't find satisfaction until she came to find it in Him. And the same thing is true of you and me. We're all Samaritan women. You could think like, all right, let's roll the credits. She lived happily ever after. But you would misunderstand what God is doing in the world. God is not just saving people from hell and then immediately He takes you to heaven. God saves you and He changes you and He uses you and He has a plan for your life before we get to heaven. We get to enjoy serving Him now. And the message tonight continues through the passage. We're going to find out from this Samaritan woman that when God is working in our lives... He doesn't only save and satisfy us, but Jesus turns sinners into worshipers. Okay, so he meets this lady. She's such a mess, but in the middle of the discussion, he starts talking about worship and how important worship is. Tonight was such a blessing to worship with you. I hope you have a sense when we're singing praise to God, like, I was made for this. I love this. Not just the emotion of the music. But when I'm looking away from me and I'm praising the Father and the Son and the Spirit, there's something glorious about that. I hope in your heart it kind of resonates like, man, that's special to me. That's something that is satisfying and enjoyable to me. It ought to be if you're a Christian because we were made to be worshipers. Jesus turns sinners into worshipers. Now, we have a short text, but a lot of explanation. I'll try to hurry through it. You hang in there. And uh, I'm going to throw a lot of information at you. You might not catch it all, uh, but it's all so exciting, and I'm kind of geeked out about it, so I'm just going to tell you a bunch of stuff, and uh, hopefully the Lord will use this and bring some of it to memory. All right, John chapter 4, let's stand together. Jesus has said, go get your husband. She said, I'm not married. He said, no, you've been married five times. Now you're shacked up with a sixth. What you said is true. Verse 19, let's start reading there. John 4, 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So she poses this question. Our fathers, that is the Samaritans, worshipped on this mountain. It was called Mount Gerizim. So our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you, Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She's asking who's right. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, let me stop for a second. Jesus is a good Jew, and it's kind of shocking that he said that. For a Jew to say, all right, let me, let me first say, the time is fast approaching when it won't matter whether it's here or Jerusalem. 
And any Jew in Jesus' day would have said, how dare you say that? Jerusalem is the place. It's the holy city. It's where God dwells. It's where the temple is. And Jesus says, the time is approaching when it's going to be neither of those. Now, he answers the question in verse 22. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. Uh, for salvation is from the Jews. That is, they had the, the Jews were given the Bible. The Jews were promised the Messiah. Salvation was coming through the Jews. But now verse 23, it sounds like a repetition of verse 21, but he goes deeper. And it's actually a really remarkable statement. But the hour is coming, and this time he adds, and is now here when true worshipers, Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And then the lady talks about Messiah, He reveals Himself, and she gets saved. But tonight we're talking about worship. Jesus turns sinners into worshipers. Be seated, please. You ever have a discussion with a friend or family, you know, you're talking about a specific subject, and then they'll interject something, and, and everybody says, man, that, that was random. Where, where did that come from? You know, we're, uh, we're talking about how much we enjoy Italian food, and then you just made a stupid comment about a cat or something. Like, like how, where'd that come from? That was random. Well, this passage could seem a little bit this way. We're in the middle of a gospel conversation. Jesus is seeking and saving this lost Samaritan woman. And we are just a few moments before a revival when this entire village of people is going to be saved, the village of Sychar. Just about every Samaritan in the area is going to come to know Jesus. In the middle of that, why talk about worship? You know, when, once in a while, you'll hear me say, I'm going to do it a couple times tonight, if I were Jesus, and I already told you that's a bad way to start a sentence, you know, there's no improving on Jesus, but I might be like, let's not talk about worship, let's talk about how you need to be saved. Why would we talk about worship in the middle of a gospel conversation? It seems like maybe a distraction or something doesn't fit, but it actually fits very well and teaches us a lot about what God is doing in the world. Jesus turns sinners into worshipers, and the first point in that is stated directly in the passage, God is seeking worshipers. What was it? A verse, verse 23, it ends by saying, the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God the Father is seeking worshipers. Now, you might hear that God is seeking worshipers, or you're going to hear us say that God made us to worship Him. God saved us for His glory. And you might say, well, does that make God an egomaniac? If God is doing, if, if He's doing what He does through the gospel and, and through everything, if He's doing it all for His praise and His glory, doesn't that make Him just, you know, the most selfish being in the universe? Is God an egomaniac? I get where the question comes from, but, but it's, it's so off for a variety of reasons, and I want to just tease it out a little bit. Let me ask you this question. First, what was in the Samaritan woman's best interest? The status quo. 
Jesus found her ashamed, pathetic, thirsty, alone, broken. And, and Jesus could have just left her in that condition. Instead, you know, he offers her life and forgiveness and satisfaction. Was she better off on her own or with Jesus? She's, she's obviously better off with Jesus. Now, in the process, Jesus is going to turn her from being a rebel against God to a joyful worshiper of God. But you can't say that, that Jesus was being egotistical. You can't say that God, in saving a lost sinner like that, was doing anything other than what was good for her. So no, God's not being selfish. Are, are you kidding? The gospel is the most selfless thing in history. There's nothing selfish about this. And the reality is, it's not just that God is trying to be the, the high, ultimate, supreme one. He is the high and ultimate and supreme one. If he were to give glory to anyone else, it would be a lie. There's nobody that compares to him. He is God. There's nobody else. He doesn't have a rival. He's not the best God. He's the only God. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the eternal one. Every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth is one day going to bow to him. Every tongue confess that he's Lord. He's just that awesome. So for him to say that everything exists to bring him glory, it's not selfishness. It's just reality. It's just a fact and it's also grace. Here's, here's a different perspective. Instead of saying this egomaniac created everybody to adore him. No, how about this? A very loving, gracious, compassionate God was totally fine without us. Father, Son, and Spirit weren't lonely. They had good fellowship, but they made humanity. Didn't have to, but they made humanity. They enjoyed being with humanity. Little lowly creatures got to fellowship with the eternal God. Adam and Eve got to walk with him in the cool of the day in the garden. He puts them in a garden. It's a perfect place. They have a cush job. There's no thorns. There's no thistle. There's no sin. Everything's perfect. There's no death. There's no cancer. And, and he just, out of his generosity, gives them everything. And they mess it up. They revolt against him. And ever since the fall, humanity's been revolting against him. You, but... But humanity in general, and especially, we're, we're kind of in the middle of this, this long slide. People don't want to talk about God. Or if you're spiritual, it's okay, but don't mention Jesus. There's such hatred. I saw a guy holding a sign, and he said, if Jesus comes back, we'll kill him again. That's the spirit of humanity. So God makes us in a perfect environment lets us enjoy him and fellowship and each other. We jack it up. We defy him. And he could have just squished us like bugs. He could have damned us all. Instead, he devised a plan where he would become a man. He would become humble. Take on the form of a man, Philippians 2 says. He just kept going down this humility uh, staircase. Becomes a man and he's, he's born in a barn. He lives a life homeless. He doesn't have anything except his clothes. 
He doesn't hurt anybody. He goes around doing good, healing people, raising the dead, teaching them, and everybody hates him and lies about him. Eventually, they crucify him. So God the Son is being spit on and slapped and beaten and mocked and thorns on his head. He's nailed to a cross And God the Father could have just obliterated humanity. Jesus could have called 10,000 angels to come and deliver him. But God takes all of that garbage from us to save us. And then we have the audacity to say that it's egotistical for God to be glorified for that kind of grace to us. We deserve nothing but damnation. And God has saved us, and we get to know him. We get to sing his praises. One day we get to be with him in heaven in a perfect world when he makes everything new. The Bible actually says we will get to reign with him. He's sharing his glory with us. Yeah, God deserves to be worshipped, and it's not egotistical. It's so gracious and actually It's such a stupid and ungrateful question. God owes us nothing, but he gives and he gives and he gives. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks a question. Maybe you know the answer. Let me try you. What is the chief end of man? Do you know? What is the chief end of man? The answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay, what you've got to see is to glorify God is to enjoy Him forever. All right, it's not like you were made to glorify God and it's going to be miserable because He's such a bore. You were made to glorify God and nothing could be more pleasurable for you. It is God's goodness that we get to worship Him, He's so worthy of our praise. Okay, so when we sang praise to God tonight, it didn't reveal how wise we are. It revealed how awesome He is. He's awesome. So God is seeking worshipers. It's not egotistical. It's actually a big part of what God is doing in the world. When when we say God is seeking worshipers, in a sense, I would say God is the great missionary. You know, missionaries are going to other lands to give people the gospel and, and see them transformed from rebels to children of God, from, from sinners to worshipers. And God's the one who started it. God's the one who's seeking worshipers. Another book by John Piper I'm recommending tonight. This was a little bit more intense. If you're looking for a Piper book, get Don't Waste Your Life. Start there. God is the gospel would be a good second one. This one's pretty deep. It's a missions book called Let the Nations Be Glad. The best part about the book is the first sentence. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. What he means is the highest motivation for going to Indonesia or, or Kenya or Brazil or wherever with the gospel, the highest motivation is We want more worshipers from those places to give glory to Jesus. So when Revelation 5 says there will be people from all over the world around the throne of Jesus singing worthy is the lamb, 
We want more people there. And missions is compassion for those people, but it is a deeper passion for the glory of God. Let me be very specific. Okay, um, Phil Betts, your son is a missionary in France. Does he have children? He has two children. So, so he's taken your grandchildren away from Iowa, cross an ocean, and they live in France. That's a big sacrifice for him and for you. And what we want is we want French-speaking people around the throne giving praise to Jesus because your son went there. We want him to actually move the needle and make a difference. We want Jesus to get more glory for more people in more places so we take the gospel to the lost for the glory of God. We share the gospel so that God will be glorified. And yeah, it's, it's going to be great for those French-speaking people. And it'll be great for anybody who comes to Jesus. But as we get grace and are blessed, God gets glory. It's good for everybody. We want God to be exalted. So in the middle of saving this woman, right before saving a village, Jesus says that God is seeking worshipers, and he's not off topic. He's actually laser-like. He's right on the point. God is going to save a Samaritan village because he's seeking worshipers. Now, God is seeking worshipers, John 4, 23. Let me ask you a question. God is seeking worshipers. Where does he find them? You know, we're used to hide and seek. So you're looking. I'm looking for worshipers. Where does God find worshipers? He looks at sinful humanity. Where does he find worshipers? You know, he looks all over the world and people are lost, but occasionally he's like, oh, there's a good one. That guy's pretty noble. Good heart over here. No, what, when God looks at the world, what does he see? He sees sin, all of us. Nobody's seeking God. There's no worshipers. We're all going our own way. We're all rebellious. So if God is seeking worshipers, where does he find them? He doesn't find them. He makes them. He actually creates worshipers. He makes them, and, and let me ask you a question, think, all right, kind of follow the logic of the week. Out of what does God make worshipers? Out of what? And the answer is God makes worshipers out of Samaritan women like us. That's why we haven't rolled the credits yet. She didn't just need to get satisfied and out of hell and headed for heaven, but her life was changed so that she would adore and honor and worship and give glory and sing praises to Jesus, which he enjoys, which she enjoys. God is making worshipers out of sinners like us. So when John 4.23 says... God is seeking worshipers. Luke 19.10, I've referred to several times, it says that Jesus, the Son of Man, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. It's the same thing. God is seeking worshipers as Jesus is seeking and saving the lost. Do you get that? Every time someone comes out of the darkness to the light, the devil loses, 
God wins and God gets glory. I'm praying tonight uh, with some of the musicians. By the way, they're, they're so good. Thank you guys for what you do. Let's appreciate it. Wow. So, so we're praying tonight, and two of them prayed, and then right before I got up to preach, I just I wanted to kind of amen their prayer, and I, I don't know what to say, and I just said, God, win. Win. Don't let the devil win. The devil wants to devour people and defeat him. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. So just win. Get glory. Show your power. Flex. Show that you are as powerful to save as you ever were. You know, you saved a whole village. You're the same God. What do you think? 2,000 years later, God is in semi-retirement? You think he's sitting on his hands? You think he's, nil, he's not mighty to save? He's mighty to save. God, please don't let somebody go home from this camp lost this week. Please don't let Christians just shrug off the truth. When? When in my life? So personally, your purpose, your purpose in life, not, not just during 20, 30 minutes at church when you sing, but the purpose of your entire existence intended from creation, and we, we blew it, but then God rescued us, and now from the new creation, from salvation, the point of your life is to give glory to God. You know, we'll, we'll quote Scripture and say that we are not our own. Yeah, we're, we're bought with the blood of Christ. He owns us, so all we can do is say, God, what do you want me to do? Blank check, what do you want me to do? You want me to be a nurse? I'm going to be the best nurse I can and be a gospel witness. You, you want me to be a pastor? That's not my plan, but yep. You want me to be a missionary? You want me to be a nurse missionary? Anything. God, you say it. I'm living for you and for your glory. Anything less than that is mutiny against God. But even beyond that, it's self-harm. It's you know, you're, you're, you're trying to run your life instead of letting God run your life. You're revolting against Him, and it's going to go badly for you. I mean, if I'm just appealing to your best interests, it's in your best interest to live a life that is focused on the glory of God. I think we're ending tonight by singing, uh, may the glory of your name be the passion of the church. Yeah, that's what we live for, for the glory of God. God is seeking and making worshipers. Love A.W. Tozier, a Canadian pastor. You want to read good, a good book? Um, what is it? The um, Thirst? No. Pursuit of God. A.W. Tozier, Pursuit of God. I read it as a teenager, and it was one of the first Christian books I read. And it just, like, I should be loving, pursuing, passionate for God. It's a small book, but A.W. Tozier. We are brought to God and to faith and to salvation in order that we might worship and adore Him. We are saved to worship God. All that Christ has done for us in the past and all that He is doing now leads to this one end. You are saved to worship God, singing, but, but more than singing, your whole life, your whole passion, your reason to exist. Now, this is where this, the message is going to get a little bit technical, and I'm going to go fast uh, not too fast because you get a half hour of extra sleep tomorrow, but 
all right, mentally lean in. Wake yourself up a little bit, all right? Uh, real fast, stand up. You're doing great, stand up. Wake up your neighbor, say, hey, hey. Concentrate, focus. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. sit down. Sit down, here we go. Now, something big happened. Something big happened when Jesus said, the hour is coming and has now arrived when the temple won't matter. That is stupendous. Jesus said the temple won't matter. People will worship in spirit and in truth anywhere. That's a big deal. There's a point at which, I'm just saying it this way, Jesus replaced the temple. He said, because I'm here, that temple in Jerusalem is obsolete. You know, it's, it's over. We're, we're going temple 2.0. Now, that's not even accurate because you had Solomon's temple was one. Herod's temple was, well, no, Nehemiah's temple was Haggai's two. We're getting the best temple. Jesus is the perfect temple. Now, that's confusing. You know that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. We used to sacrifice lambs in the Old Testament, millions of them over the years. Must have been a bloody, smelly, ugh, gross. Jesus is the ultimate lamb of God. And we know that in the Old Testament, there was a priesthood, there was a high priest, but Jesus is the perfect high priest, Hebrews says. So we see all these Old Testament prophecies, but we see the fulfillment in Christ, Jesus is the ultimate temple, and when he arrived, the old temple just faded away. It was no longer important. I didn't get this until maybe like 10 years ago. I'm an old man, I'm a pastor, and I would read John 2. Turn back to John 2, quickly. John 2, Jesus had just cleansed the temple. John 2, 18, Jesus cleansed the temple the first thing he did, before he changed the water to wine, you know, his, his hey, I'd like to, to introduce myself to you. He goes in, he turns over tables and drives people out with a scourge. I mean, he was mad. So the Jews said to him, John 2, 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Who do you think you are? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus said, destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. Now let me tell you something. If I were Jesus, all right, go ahead and moan, because I shouldn't say it. If, if I were Jesus... Yeah, don't do that. That's a stupid thing to say. All right, shh, enough. You're going to start throwing things at me. If I were Jesus, I kind of think like, Jesus, you can't really blame them. When you say destroy the temple, I'll raise up in three days. You're in the temple. You cleanse the temple. Of course, they're thinking about this, this huge complex, but Jesus meant his body. And I'm kind of like, you know, you weren't very clear there. No, it's perfectly clear. And it's so it's so significant in the history of redemption and what God was doing in the world. 
Why did Jesus compare his body to the temple? Because Jesus is the perfect temple. And here's what I mean by that. It's not, it's not all that complicated. The point of the temple was that's where sinners approached God. You sinned, you're going to need to go to the temple, and, and you're going to, to seek God there. It was a place of prayer. I mean, there's a sense in which you could pray from anywhere, but before Jesus came, if somebody wanted to get saved, they basically had to go to Jerusalem. So sinners sought God, approached God at the temple, and it was the place of sacrifice. I say it's where God was appeased. So preachers love stuff like that. Approached and appeased. Okay, you sought God, and then the blood sacrifice was made at the temple. Jesus made all of that obsolete. You approach God through Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. No one comes unto the Father but by me. We have, Hebrew says, a new and living way. So we access God not through a building. We access God through a person, through Jesus Christ. And God's appeasement, God's satisfaction through blood was never really through the blood of lambs and goats. All of that was just kind of predicting the time when the Lamb of God would come. Jesus is the one that satisfied the wrath of God, that gives us access to God. Jesus is the temple, and the temple just stopped mattering anymore. And to a Jew, that would be mind-blowing. How dare you? Because he's God. Because all of those things were just kind of a type, a prototype, but he's, he's the real thing. So we approach God not through a building, but through his son, Jesus. And that's amazing. How many of you have been to Jerusalem? Two? A few? Not many. How do you know God? You come to God through Jesus. That's why, here we are at camp, you know, forgive me, I'm trying to get all the buildings straight. This is called the chapel. Yeah? chapel. All right? Churches have auditoriums. I don't even like calling a church auditorium a sanctuary. Do you know what sanctuary means? It's a holy place. But, but there isn't really a holy place anymore. Okay? Jesus is the one that, that we meet. So I pastored a church in Cleveland uh, for 15 years, and 12 of those years we met in a high school. It was dirty, filthy. They had bad words on the back of chairs. The fact that that church grew was a miracle because it was so gross. We had a four-year-old visit with his parents, and during the second song, they look over, and he's chewing a big wad of gum. And they're both like, did you give him gum? Did you get No, he, he had peeled it off the bottom of the chair. and ugh. Why could we meet in a school that was filthy and had dirty words, and we could meet there because buildings really don't matter? The church could be in a forest or catacombs or wherever, because Jesus is the point. It's not about a building. Now, buckle up. We're, we're going to be quick. And this, I, I should totally not have put in the sermon, but just, just I want you to, to learn something fast. You can look this up on your own. So I wouldn't tell you to take a picture of it, but you don't have your phones. So bless you. So very quickly. You guys, you know, in sports, there's a home game. We're like, protect this house. 
there were two times when Jesus cleansed the temple. By cleansing, you know, we don't mean mopping. We mean he drove out money changers and thieves and animals. They turned the temple from being a place of prayer to being like a flea market. So the first time was in John 2. And when he cleansed the temple, he was upset by how they had treated my father's house. Okay, that's important. The temple was God's house. Herod built it, and Herod was a bad guy, but it was God's house. A second time he cleansed the temple is in Matthew 21. On the day of his triumphal entry, uh, the week of his crucifixion, he cleansed it again, deja vu. But this time, he complained about the way they had treated my house, which is a pretty audacious thing to say, unless you're God. So he says, he says, you've mistreated my father's house, I'm going to clean it. You've mistreated my house, which is to be a house of prayer. Because he's God, he can say that. But jump with me ahead to, or back to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, verse 37. The week of his crucifixion, after he had cleansed the temple, he's going to lament and weep over Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones the ones who are sent into it. Listen to this regret and sorrow. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. King James says, you would not. You didn't want me. And he sorrowed. And then he says in verse 38, see, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Don't stop. Keep reading into chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Like, wow, isn't this amazing? He answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus left the temple that last day. He said, this is not my father's house. This is not my house. Dead Judaism, dead religion, Pharisees, high priests, you can have it. This is your house. And Jesus became the new and living temple. And we approach God through him. And we don't have to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to meet God. He's everywhere. We access him through Jesus. Does that make sense? We're going. We should quit. However, there's one more sense I want to emphasize, and that's this. It makes sense to say that Jesus is the new temple, but there's also a sense in which we replace the temple, and I put the temple in, in smaller letters, okay? And you're hanging in there. I'm proud of you. You're doing good. Great is your reward in heaven for listening to such a long sermon. Stick with me. It matters. Jesus is the ultimate temple, but all through the New Testament, the church is called his temple, the building that he lives in by his spirit. So don't be confused by that. You're like, well, so is Jesus the temple or, or are we? Both. Okay, like Jesus would say, I am the light of the world. And then he would say, you are the light of the world. Okay, so he's the light, like capital L, he's the sun, we're the moon, but, but we, we kind of have a similar ministry. 
Okay, he's the temple, but in a, in a secondary sense, we're the temple. The New Testament teaches again and again that God lives in us through the Holy Spirit. It says we are his temple, we're his spiritual building, and you can read that, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Ephesians 2.21, 1 Peter 2.5 says we are living stones being built into a house of God. So when it says we're the temple, God lives in his people, God lives in us, not in a building, and it matters. One more time. You're doing great. Let me give you just a quick history lesson about temples, all right? I'll be fast, and uh, I'll, I'll make the PDF available. People can read the notes later if they want, all right? You know what a housewarming is? Somebody gets a new house, they kind of move in, and you buy them a gift and that kind of thing. In Exodus 40, God moved into the tabernacle. Do you remember they had come out of Egypt they went through the Red Sea. God lived among them in the tabernacle. It's God's place, his sanctuary, but it was just a tent. So it could move around. But when God entered it, when they prayed and committed to him, Moses is praying. And you remember, there was a cloud, there was a rush of fire, and then they would follow him through the wilderness. During the day, the, the, there was a pillar of cloud, and during the night, there was a pillar of fire that hovered over the tabernacle, right? You remember that. Check. Okay, eventually, God didn't want to live in a tent. He wanted a building. David wanted to build it, but he was a man of war, so Solomon built it. He moved from a tent into this beautiful building. Okay, when you first get married, you're not going to have any money. You're going to rent an apartment, but someday you're going to want a house. It was kind of like that. So God moved into a house. Solomon prayed and when God entered that house, 2 Chronicles 5, 13 and 14, and then 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3, says there was a cloud, there was a rush, there was fire that swept in, and the priests had to leave the temple because the fire of God came there. The glory of God dwelt there. And in the Holy of Holies, above the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, there was this fire, the glory of God that hovered there. Check. All right. Turn real fast to Acts 2. I'm going to stop apologizing. Just turn to Acts 2. All right. Acts 2 for a moment. It's cool and, and it actually matters. All right. Acts 2. We sang tonight about when the church started and the Holy Spirit kind of lit it on fire, is that idea? Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So it filled the room. But verse 3 says, divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were filled with the Spirit, began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Listen, on the day of Pentecost when the church was born, the Spirit comes, blows into the upper room, but the flame didn't hover over the building and, and the upper room. It hovered over Christians. That man, that woman, that man, that woman, young, old, rich, poor. It was always so random to me. Why would God symbolize the coming of the Spirit with... A, a flame of fire over people's heads. 
it, it sounds unsafe. You know, it sounds like fire codes were broken. Danger. Why? Because God symbolized the same way, just like the tabernacle and temple. I live here, but I now don't live in a church. I don't live in an upper room. I live in individual people. So if there's 120 people, there were 120 flames because we are the temple of God. That's amazing. God lives in you. You know, there's a sense in which you are the holy of holies because the Spirit of God lives in you. What difference does it make, Chris? Stop talking. Here's the difference. God's earthly presence is no longer in Jerusalem. It is in us, and it's ready for export. Because it was in individual Christians, now we're supposed to take the gospel to all the world, to, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and now we're taking the temple out. Okay, so the temple has been franchised. It could come to America. It could come to Iowa. It could, it could go to Africa. It could go to unreached people groups because the temple of God is now portable. I end with this illustration. That's our church praying over a couple. We're sending them to South Africa. And, you know, a good-sized church, maybe 300, not huge. But what if success as a church means we send people rather than just collecting people? Most churches, you can close your Bibles, we're, we're done. Just listen to a quick story and then we'll dismiss. Most churches, you measure success. If we had 50 last year, we want 60 next year. If we had 100, we want 150. We want, we want to grow, and that's a good thing. I want growth. But sometimes success means we send people out. So here we are praying over this family and sending them away, kind of like parenting. If I told you, man, I'm such a good dad, my kids are going to live with me when they're 50, you'd say, you're poor children. Success means I get them ready to move out. Okay, well, just quickly, and this will set us up for tomorrow night. The Browns, he was, he was a lawyer making killer money in Philly, but he, called, he felt called of God to leave his law practice, go to the mission field, and now this part of God's temple is in South Africa, and we miss them as a church, but South Africa needs him more than Atlanta did. There's a guy coming to our church, Zach Bell, best evangelist we had. He would live with immigrants, give them the gospel. He's burdened to go to Nepal. And, and he's, he's getting very close to launching. He and his wife now have a baby. So they're going to a very, very dark place. We're going to miss this guy. But Nepal needs him more than Atlanta does. I came back from a mission trip, preached on missions. This is a great family. He's a fireman. She was a teacher, now a stay-at-home mom. Great kids. During the sermon, you know, God's working. They called me the afternoon. They said, Pastor, we love it here at Killian Hill Baptist Church. But we both think God is calling us to Southeast Asia. I don't say the country because it's close, but we think God's calling us. They left their parents. The grandkids left their grandpa, grandma. Both of them had grown up in the church. And last October, I drove them to the airport, and they are on the opposite side of the world, 12 time zones away. During the message, they're on their phones. I kind of think they're taking notes. But they're texting another family, the Junior Browns, this guy, Nick, was our elementary principal. We need this guy. 
They now have five beautiful kids. We need this guy to stay. And they said to him, hey, we're going to Southeast Asia. Do you want to go with us? And two months ago, they went to the airport. They're on the other side of the world. I kind of got the idea. Now I get a call from a guy, Doug Abels. He's our head of school. We really need this guy. He says, hey, Chris, I need to talk to you. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where are you going? They're burdened for South Africa. They're going to do some education, maybe in Jordan. No longer in our church. We had a deacon and his wife. She was a teacher in our school. Pastor, we need to talk to you. Yup, where are you going? They're helping a church plant in Idaho. It just like, it's like a dripping faucet, on and on. A deacon uh, was training for ministry, and in December, we sent him out to go pastor a church in Atlanta. Uh, this black family comes in. We're in a very diverse area. Here comes this guy, and he has a great job, and he's teaching his kids, and we want to keep him, but I hear him preach, and I'm like, man, he's not staying. I take him to lunch. I say, Kwame, I love you. I want you in the church forever, but I think you're called to preach, and if you're called to preach, you're called to train, and he talked to his wife. They prayed about it. He is right now in seminary, just finished his first semester at this school in Iowa called Faith uh, Baptist Bible College. He just finished his first semester. And he's, he's not, he's not going to stay. He's going to go out and plant a church or do something else. God just kept doing that. This couple finished a degree in math and finance. They called and said, hey, pastor, we think we could get a job in Europe. We don't need missionary support. We have degrees. We'd like to go get a job in Europe, but help missions. Do you think there's a place for us? There's a place for them. Well, all this was happening. This was the last four years at the church I pastored. And you know, you might wonder, why after 25 years did I leave pastoring to recruit missionaries? And there just was a point, like, God was doing such a unique work sending people out. The part of pastoring I love the most is preaching. But a, a close second is deploying Christians to the mission field. Most of our churches are like Alabama football. Our second and third string could do fine. We need people to get out of our churches and get to the mission field. God was doing it. Now I'm praying that God will do it with you. And the last family sent out from Killian Hill Baptist Church on my watch was my family. And God has allowed me to be, I say, a missions catalyst. I get to mess with people and get them to rethink their life. And maybe God would use you to take the gospel to a dark place. And all of that fits with worship because, because of what he's done. He owns you. You live for him. You, you sing to him, but you, you also even... Be willing to mess up your life plans for his glory. He is so worth it. Worship is every Christian's duty, but also every Christian's delight. We have been made, and then we have been saved to glorify God. God doesn't just want to save you. He wants you to know and adore and enjoy him. And God has prepared us for worldwide missions by filling the church with his Holy Spirit and commanding us to go. The temple of God is us. Now let's take it to people who don't know about Jesus so they can worship with us and it'll just keep on going wave after wave for the glory of God. Amen? Amen.
Thank you, Lord, for the truth. Thank you for these young people and others who have volunteered their time this week. Thank you for what you're doing. Just, just win. Show your power. Use your word tonight and, and change lives for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. 